0: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following podcast contains explicit language Hide your children. I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 5th, 2022. On this week's show, we're gonna talk about Kansas's historic comeback win over North Carolina in college basketball's men's title game. The athletic Chantel Jennings will also join us to talk about South Carolina's big win over UConn in the women's tournament. And finally, we'll talk about Eric Church's decision to cancel a sold-out concert to go to the Final Four. And when watching sports, Trump's social obligation. I am in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in DC, where we are recording this after midnight because we care. It's Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of Word Freak: A few seconds of panic and wild and outside. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. How's it going? I'm awake. I'm awake. <laughs> With us from Palo Alto, California, taking advantage of uh, the Pacific Time Zone, it's Joel Anderson. He's the host of Slow Burn Season 3 on Biggie and Tupac and Season 6 on the LA Riots. Are you enjoying your West Coast privilege, Joel?
1: Well, I mean, I just, I'm a little jealous that you all are in the future. Um, it's Tuesday out there. Still Monday here. We're living in the past. Only so much hope I can have. Is Kansas still the champion in, in Tuesday?
0: They are. They
1: are. Oh, too bad. All weekend in New Orleans, top-seeded Kansas took a backseat to the hype of the North Carolina Duke semifinal. And for good reason, as that game actually lived up to expectations, ending with a narrow win by the Tar Heels over their most hated rivals. But North Carolina would need to play one more game for the storybook ending, this one against a better rested, deeper, and more talented Jayhawks team for the national championship. The Tar Heels put up a good fight early, racing out to a 40-25 halftime lead. But with only a six-man rotation— it was a little too much to ask of them to hold on. The good story couldn't get it away of this fact. Kansas entered the weekend as a higher-seeded team for a reason. The Jayhawks had five players score in double figures and the largest comeback in NCAA championship game history, pulling out a 72-69 to win on Monday night. It was Kansas's first national title since 2008 and fourth overall. We're recording this segment only minutes after the final horn. The one shining moment montage hasn't even aired yet. And Josh, are you as surprised as I am that the Jayhawks were able to dig out of that early hole and then withstand one more last push from the heels?
0: Yeah, I mean, in one sense, your intro is totally true about the Tar Heels being a plucky underdog. I mean, there's been this cognitive dissonance throughout the whole tournament with seeing that little number eight next to north carolina like with you know are are they a blue blood program who's just rampaging through the tournament or are they like a, a sweet underdog Cinderella story and after they beat duke again i mean it's hard to argue that they're uh you know not as good as duke after they beat them on duke's home floor and again in the tournament and then raced out to that 15 point lead we, we weren't looking at that game and thinking this is there, there's no way it can it can hold on. It's like, of course it's going to hold on. They've got the 50-point lead. Uh, Kansas <laughs> isn't, uh, isn't doing crap against uh, this juggernaut Tar Heels program. <laughs> but it wasn't one of these games where it was just kind of a slow leak. The way that Kansas just came right out of the locker room and was able to do things that they'd done in the Elite Eight game against Miami and other games in the tournament where they um, were able to get out on the break kind of impose their athleticism and make Carolina look tired and get into that short rotation that you mentioned, Joel. So, Stefan, I don't know how you felt about it. Were you feeling like um, Carolina was the juggernaut or Carolina was the underdog? Or was it kind of flip-flopping for you throughout the game?
2: Well, I've got a news update. One Shining Moment is now on, and the Indiana cheerleader just plucked the uh, basketball (laughs) off of the top of the backboard. When this game started... Kansas was out of the gate, crazy. I mean, my first note was this kind of feels like what South Carolina did to Connecticut in the women's final on Sunday night. And then uh, North Carolina went on that 10-0 run. That turned into a 16-0 run, and they were up 40-25 at halftime. I mean, this was a a really energetic game out of the gate, and you don't, you, you know, you wonder why that happens sometimes. Is it just the tension of the moment? Is it the setting in the giant dome? Also, both teams shot pretty terribly at the beginning, especially Kansas throughout the course of the first half. And what really changed is that Kansas channeled the energy into shooting well in addition to getting out on the break, as you said, in the early part of the second half, and they just ran, um, you know, caught up, and then it was a great game to the finish.
0: All right, we can't make people wait any longer for that Hubert Davis clip from midway through the first half. Let's get a load of that. There. I thought we were nervous at the beginning, then we started to settle in. We got better defensively. Now we're attacking the basket. We're ready to go. Are you okay with how Baycott is right now? He's doing terrific. I'm so proud of him. I told you, 52%, him on the floor. It's good news for Carolina basketball. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Tracy. Hey, it's live action.
1: It's live it's action.
0: It's hard to tell in the early and moments after a game like this, Joel, but do you feel like it's live action, Tracy, is going to become stand the test of time as a forward phrase. of uh, course not.
1: Uh, <laughs> nobody's going to remember this. Uh, can you remember who won the NCAA championship in
0: 2014? 2014? You're just like plucking I'm just a, saying, just you're go just go like ahead, plucking a random just, year out of out of thin I'm air. just
1: telling you like none of the, you, know, you we can barely remember the winners let alone the losers. I do think though that he wasn't quite prophetic. It was not good news for the heels <laughs> that, that you know, things fell apart for them in fairly short order after the halftime break And yeah I mean You mentioned it already I mean Kansas came out They've sort of Overpowered them um, They've got more talent They've got more depth And then I mean When Armando Bacot Went down With that That right ankle injury With 38.5 seconds left um, They were down by a point And it was just like <sighs> You felt like UNC had been sort of riding a wave, like even when they managed to fight their way back down late in the game. But when he went down, it just felt like the air had been lit out of that particular balloon. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, okay, like they can't keep doing this with this short of a rotation without. I mean, Armando Bacot, he can rebound. He's great at picks. He's a good defender. That's not a guy that scores, but he's sort of like the um I guess he's sort of the thermometer for the team like i I like him as a guy that's like okay like he he seems to be the leader of the team, and when he went down and hobbled off the floor, I felt like okay, the heels' ch- championship chances went with him, but um, yeah, man, I mean you know hubie man he put it he he acquitted himself really well i mean this is you know i mean you know you you were talking about you know is this an underdog or whatever, and maybe it's that. UNC, you know, in in college basketball, like, you know, you're you're looking at a season as a whole, but maybe you think about it, you break it down into pieces. He's a brand new coach, doing a few things differently. There's rosters turnover all the time. Like, by the end of the year, they were effectively a different team. And that's some of that you can credit to the growth and development of the players and them getting used to the system. But some of that is also building a program and building a team, which, uh, you know, that got better. And you have to give Hubie Davis some credit for that. So not good news. Uh, for for the heels, but, you know, I think long-term that bodes pretty well, don't you think?
2: Well, I was going to say that if you had said before the game whatever happens, and a lot of North Carolina fans or just people on Twitter were saying, it doesn't really matter because Duke, because they beat Duke to win the, 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 the ACC championship in Cameron to send Coach K out of his own building with an L, and then they did it again in the Final Four, and everyone was saying, you know, you might as well just stop playing now because that's all that matters. That was a good take before the game. After this game, man, maybe it wasn't such a great take. Mm. Um, but I do think if you if you compare the range of feelings that Carolina fans are experiencing, the high versus the low, the high was much, much higher beating Duke in the semifinals.
0: I was talking about this with Alex Kirchner. So this line might appear in the... Piece that he's writing for Slate, but it's sort of it's the house money theory. Oh, it's all it's all house money from here on. This game where you blow the biggest lead in championship right. history. It's like right. if you take the house money, light it on fire, and then your house lights on fire. <laughs> uh, it it really is putting the the house money theory to a serious test. I mean, I'm looking at the box score now, and there is a scenario in which Car- I mean, like a, a pretty clear scenario in which Carolina wins this game, just like one shot Kansas misses and one shot Carolina makes. And if that had happened, these are the lines in the Carolina box score. This would have been the winning the winning numbers for the team. Baycott 3-for-13, R.J. Davis 5-for-17, Caleb Love 5-for-24. Mm. They shot 31.5% yeah. from the field and somehow still managed to score 69 points. I mean, they had 55 rebounds to 35 for Kansas, and I would if we go back and Watch the game again. I would imagine that on that three for thirteen for Baycott, some large number of those missage were just like him throwing the ball to himself off the backboard. Um and <laughs> well, so Moses some, Malone. Yeah. Some some of that is understandable, but like Love and Davis were kind of hot and cold throughout the tournament and throughout the season. Um, and and they were just, you know, cold in this game. And that's that's the thing about a tournament where you have to win, um, all these games in a row, the the pounding kind of caught up to Carolina. I mean, Baycott's ankle just gave out mm-hmm. at the end of the game. And also, even if you don't, if you're not talking about um, injury, let me get on my hobby horse here. The thing oh. that's just like pissed me off so much throughout this tournament and um, I just, I don't understand is fouls in college basketball. For the longest time, Joel and Stefan, I've just accepted it and not questioned it. But what even is the point of fouling out? Like, what does that achieve or accomplish? Like, there's no other sport uh, that I can think of where it's like, if you get a bunch of like false starts in football, they don't kick you out of the game. If you foul a guy a couple times in soccer, they don't kick you out of the game unless you get a red card, and there's a mechanism for that in basketball. Like if you're committing flagrants, they you can get you out of to, the game.
2: Right. I guess the are you saying that a flagrant is the equivalent of a yellow card?
0: Yeah, but well, they,
2: but so, they so, kick
1: out and track if you do false starts. I mean, that's a, yeah. maybe and the that's closest. And that's stupid.
0: That's really stupid. Um, but but so throughout this tournament, like in the um, Duke UNC game, Mark Williams gets a couple fouls in the beginning of the game, and it just like completely destroys. The game for him and for Duke. I mean, I wasn't happy that Duke lost, but it's just it's it was stupid. I mean, in this game, you get into a situation where at the end of the first half, they just like both teams are basically like trying to get off the court without their guys picking up more than two fouls, and so you have Leaky Black is like out for most of this game, who's the best defender for UNC. And I just don't understand how that serves any purpose. It doesn't make the game better. It doesn't make the the game more fair. It's just stupid.
1: It hasn't every big championship game of our lifetime, for the most part, I would say, been determined by foul trouble in one way or another. I feel like that happens in every tight college championship game or, or like the Final Four. I mean, it, You could really say the whole tournament, right? But especially the games that we're paying most attention to, I always feel like fouls and foul trouble end up playing an outsized role in the outcome of the game. Well, so yeah, I mean, I that mean it should lot be of sense. Th-
0: a college basketball championship game should be the most offensive to Joel Anderson of anyone in America, because it is. it's determined by mm-hmm. who just yeah. like randomly makes the most three pointers yeah. and who yeah. the refs decide to call fouls on that game. Right. Um, and we, can, we can't we can eliminate the like capriciousness of three pointers, but like five fouls is too few um coaches sitting guys who get two fouls i think is dumb but you can at least kind of understand you say that until they get the
1: third foul before the halftime
0: yeah but like
1: and then and then it's like oh man why did they leave him in you why did they leave him in to get a third foul it's
0: just it's it it just takes away like you go into the game so excited about like these matchups and then just like guys randomly just like pick up fouls that are just like touching a guy on a rebound it's not even like a serious and then like the whole game is like totally changed i hate it stefan yeah um can we talk for a second about how kansas
2: i mean i agree i mean and there's so many touch fouls in basketball and it's just it's stupid um can we talk for a second about how kansas was like basically an nba age team um because of the pandemic and i really hadn't thought about this much but the the increase in the number of players sticking around um, just made this roster and other rosters in this tournament and on the women's side too um, much more like old time college basketball rosters. Uh, Kansas's Mitch Mitch Lightfoot, twenty four years old, sixth year student. Remy Martin, twenty three. Um, Jalen Coleman lands, twenty five years old, same age as 20. Devin Booker.
0: Yeah, I think Obagi is pretty old. That's a good point. And it's also the, like, weird sweet spot in college basketball that you have to hit where you can't recruit too well. (laughs) And, like, that's the other thing about Kansas. I mean, more power to them. Like, fuck the NCAA, obviously. But, like, they got got notice of allegations Mm -hmm. in 2018. Bill Self, like, texting an Adidas dude where it's, like, clear that um, he's, like, way smarter than Will Wade, obviously. He's not, like, paying these guys out of his you know, joint checking account with his wife. But like, <laughs> he's clearly like brokering financial deals to get players to Kansas. But like, maybe ultimately, the fact that there is this cloud over the program, maybe like the guys who are going to go top five, top 10, <laughs> stay away from Kansas. They got these guys who stick around a little bit longer championship for Bill Self. There you go. Mm-hmm. And And it's like all these years later, and they still haven't like ruled on anything related to this note, notice of allegations that came out years and years ago, and then you have, you know, Bill Self being heralded. Uh, I don't think they mentioned it at all on the broadcast, did they?
1: I don't. I don't think so. I didn't hear it if they did, but I mean, why would they, right? And I mean, that whole paradigm has sort of changed. We talked about this with Will Wade a couple of weeks ago, right? It's like he's a man ahead. Of, he's he was a man
0: ahead of his time, you know. He's like, hey, man, these guys need to get paid. Let's get them paid. I mean, I think there's some it's it's a little bit of like paranoia and ridiculous among like LSU fans where it's like this wouldn't they wouldn't have booted this guy if he was at one of the blue blood programs like Duke or Kansas. I think there's like some truth to it, but I also feel like it's been so long since this first came out and like. Arizona did fire Sean Miller and, like, Louisville's program is kind of in tatters. NC State's program is kind of in tatters. Like, the Kansas, Kansas just, like, managed to, like, dodge this and, like, kind of thread the needle. Like, good job by them.
1: (laughs) Right. This is why you don't fire Bill Self, though. Right. Like you, may, like you. This he is got a why lifetime contract. Yeah. Yeah. You force them to make that move, um, which I think is what most colleges. I mean, most colleges don't. So I don't. I don't think most colleges self-report anymore. They're basically they fight these, these allegations of of, of this stuff anymore have, and want to draw they have it fought
0: out. Fought it vociferously. Yeah.
1: So I mean, it's it. It just makes a lot of sense to do that, and this is the payoff. Yeah. I guess I'm not gonna get all worked up about about that piece of it because i think that like fundamentally those rules are stupid like i said fuck the ncaa but yeah it you know what though i think some of this is that people just don't have a lot of strong opinions about kansas or kansas basketball right like isn't it kind of weird i just feel like there's not like for 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 its blue blood status
0: yeah people don't get angry about kansas the way they do about like duke or kentucky
1: Right. Yeah, I'm a Big 12 guy. Kansas has lorded over that conference, you know, year after year after year. And it's not like I hold it against them or anything. But I, and I don't know if that speaks more about the standing of college basketball and uh, the American sports culture now, or if it's just that Kansas is sort of an inoffensive program. When I think of Kansas, I think of Danny Manning, Paul Pierce, just like guys you, you're you not going to get really excited about. Very good basketball players, very solid basketball players, Jock Vaughn, just dudes that are— Okay, but there's nothing really to get excited about. Just a really good, solid program. They all they always play the B side in in a championship game, right? Like Kansas just ends up there. They're always in the way of somebody else's story. I feel
0: like. Yeah, I mean, when Kansas life. beat Memphis and the the Derrick Rose year coming back late and then Mario Chalmers hitting that shot, that's I, I think was seen at the time and is remembered now as like kind of ruining Memphis's day, right? It wasn't like mm-hmm. Kansas. I, I'm. I'm sure uh, a Kansas fan would disagree <laughs> with disagree, this tape, yeah. but I feel like with the national storyline, there it was like, "Wow, that was really Memphis's uh, game to lose," sad, and they yeah. sure did lose it.
2: Well, it seems like building that kind of a program is a safe way to also avoid the kind of uh, antipathy and scrutiny that might come with being one of the hated programs. Um, and Kansas has that nice font on their uniforms for the for the for their name and and the names of the players on the back. I like that font.
1: Seems like a delightful little school and campus. I don't have any, you know problems with kids. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna just say this because Josh, you couldn't name the 2014 NCAA champion, and I can't either. I, I don't
2: know was it Wisconsin, Duke?
1: I think Wrong. it may have been Duke actually. was no, Wisconsin. It. Yeah.
0: Keep guessing. <laughs> it's never Wisconsin. It's never Wisconsin. Kentucky. No, they it was lost. Kentucky with Anthony Kentucky Davis? Lost
2: though. You're halfway.
1: Go ahead. Kentucky lost. Was it
0: North Carolina?
1: No. Oh man, who did Kentucky lose to that year? Was that that was the team with the tw- the, the Harrison twins? I think. I'm, okay, just tell. Who it was is it?
0: UConn.
1: Oh, was that the team with
0: Shabazz Napier? That was the like kind of bad UConn team. That just, yeah, it was uh, a bad UConn team.
1: A team that was decimated by NCAA violations. The coach gets, <laughs> if I remember. Yeah, I mean Kevin Ollie gets fired, in, in you know, in a blaze of allegations and sues the school. So yeah, I mean, just I mean, it all goes back. But the point is, nobody is going to remember this championship team you watch unless you go to kansas unless maybe you're like a big 12 obsessive it's going to be like that duke unlv game in 91 the semifinal The that duke knocks off that that number one rated unlv team with larry johnson and stacy Ogman, and people are going to forget that there was a championship game after it. i guarantee it like i just don't think people are going to remember this team which doesn't say anything about the quality of the game it's a great game very exciting a lot of great storylines but i just think this is sort of an eminently forgettable team in part because kansas is just sort of like a b-side you know uh, that's the end for this segment. And we're going to talk more about Coach K Duke and that uh, thrilling semifinal on Saturday in the bonus segment. In the next segment, we'll have on Chantel Jennings of The Athletic to talk about Don Staley and South Carolina's championship victory on Sunday
2: At 8.20 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday, a Twitter account with the name at by Joel Anderson wrote, South Carolina about to punish these girls. Prophetic Twitter account. The Gamecocks didn't just beat the University of Connecticut 64-49 in Minneapolis for the school's second women's college basketball championship in the last six seasons. They crushed them. South Carolina had by far the two most dominant players on the court, Aaliyah Boston and Destiny Henderson. They dominated the glass. They shut down UConn's star player, Paige Beckers. Chantel Jennings of The Athletic was at the sold-out Target Center. She joins us now. Welcome back, Chantel. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back. All right, let's start with the game. This was an ass-kicking. South Carolina (laughs) never trailed. It raced out to a 22 8 first quarter lead. UConn never got closer than six the rest of the way. On TV, anyway, it felt like, you know, like a foreordained first or second round mismatch. Did something go especially right for South Carolina and wrong for UConn? Or was South Carolina just that much better? I mean, they did finish the season with a record of 35-2, and and the two losses were by a combined three points.
3: I would say yes and yes. South Carolina was the better team. They've been the better team all season. They've been the number one team wire to wire. They never trailed. They were the better team. They deserve this national championship. That said... You know, UConn lost one of its post players earlier in the tournament, Dorka Juhasz, to a broken wrist. I think she could have made a difference in this game, specifically in that margin of on the glass that you mentioned. And AZ Fudd missed shoot-around yesterday with a stomach illness, and so specifically when South Carolina was just dominating the paint so succinctly, it would have helped UConn to have another floor spacer, but she only played 17 minutes. And she just, went, even when she was on the bench, she would look over at her and she just looked out of it.
1: So there was a moment in the third quarter when Aaliyah Boston was going for a rebound under UConn's basket. Uh, and Aaliyah Edwards of UConn sort of half-heartedly tried to go for it and ended up bouncing off of her and, and like landed somewhere near the free throw line. And And really throughout the game, I experienced a sensation that I've never felt before. And I want to know if you felt this way too, Chantel. Have you ever felt sorry for UConn in a game of this magnitude before? Because <laughs> no, I did. I felt I like they were so. overwhelmed <laughs> and outgunned, and it didn't matter how well they played, it just seemed like the outcome was predetermined.
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot of times, even when UConn is winning, where you sort of look at Gino on the sidelines and he rubs his face and he kind of takes his glasses off and he turns around and he like scuffs his foot. But it's like when they're up 20 and he's pissed that they're not up 40, right? Uh, But there were just so many times in this game where you'd see the difference on the glass. This was a team that got out rebounded by 25 boards. Like, it was, as you said, an ass-kicking on the glass. Um, South Carolina got to the free-throw line 26 times. UConn got there four times. That is not a margin you see in a national championship game, and it wasn't because of the reffing. It was because of the physicality. And I think the point that you just made, though, no, I didn't feel bad for <laughs> UConn at all. Um, <laughs> Because the better team won, and it's a national championship game, and, and you look at the way Don Staley has prepared this team. So I there were times, I guess, but ultimately the better team won. But there's something about watching Aliyah Boston play in person. It is just so different. I think everyone should try to do it. I've felt this way about some athletes covering them. Marcus Mariota was one of them at Oregon. You could see him play. On TV and sort of see these dives he makes, but it's different when you're on the sidelines, sort of there watching it happen in real life. I feel the same way about Aliyah Boston. There's something just about sitting courtside or in the arena. She is so much better in person. Sort of all of these moves that she makes just sort of become that much more powerful and forceful. And you know, you see Aliyah Edwards bump, you know, three inches over on your TV screen, I see her bump 12 feet out. And then Aaliyah doesn't even move because she's just that strong.
0: The only thing better than Aaliyah Boston on the court is Aaliyah Boston in an interview, any interview. Um, Here's a little bit of what she said to Holly Rowe uh, on the court immediately after the game. When you hear that, you miss seeing the props. Uh, You miss seeing her do a very large uh, smile and then holding up the national championship placard. But um, she missed a putback in the final four last year, Chantel. That's what she's referring to. And there was this kind of viral image of her crying after that game that was used in promotional, like, they don't promote women's basketball enough, but they certainly promoted uh, Aaliyah Boston crying to to the extent <laughs> that anything was promoted. And that's the thing; like that's why this sport is so compelling. It's such a great television product is that you have these storylines of teams and players coming back year after year. And Aaliyah Boston is coming back next year too, um, I, I presume, unless she goes pro yes, early. She can. Um, So just, you know, say a little bit about, uh, you know, what it means for Aaliyah Boston to come back and be able to do this. And then like the larger point of like, as fans, you get to kind of watch and enjoy and appreciate this journey of hers.
3: Yeah. So Josh, yeah, she's not, she's not eligible for the WNBA draft yet. She hasn't graduated and she's not 22. And so she's too young. And I think that's one of the things that with that audio, you hear her joy and you hear her happiness, but also one of my favorite things about watching Aaliyah Boston's dominance is that every time she smiles, her mouth full of braces is what you see on the TV. And then you remember, oh my God, she's 20. <laughs> like she has another year to dominate at the college level. And this South Carolina team is really set to do that again. They lose a few of the key players from this run. Obviously, Destiny Henderson, who I thought was the best player, maybe the most impactful player, 26 points from the perimeter outside of Aaliyah Boston. But they're a team that reloads. They have eight, I believe, top 10 recruits on this team. They have players I talked to yesterday, freshmen who scored 35 points during their senior seasons of high school that averaged one or two points this year for the Gamecocks that are kind of ready to step into these larger roles and surround Aaliyah. But the fact that every year in her game, I think what surprises me and impresses me the most is how she adds to it. Between last year and this year, between that moment when we sort of saw her crying Uh, sad tears to happy tears. She lost 20 pounds. She really transformed her body to be in a place where she could play 35 minutes a game for this team. Um, she's added to her perimeter game. She attempts three pointers. Now she's not a great three point shooter, but, um, you know, at her size, you just sort of have to be serviceable to force them to guard you out there. And she's done that. And I'm really excited to see sort of what she does with another year in the system, with these players around her, another year with Dawn. Um, it's, it's going to be exciting.
2: You know, Josh, I have to say that you're celebrating this concept of these players returning, but at the same time, should we be criticizing the WNBA? Should Aaliyah Boston or Paige Beckers, for that matter, be able to go to the WNBA now and cash in? And, you know, it's not cash in in the way that NBA players get to cash in, but someday it will be, and it's going to continue to increase. You know, NIL is making up for that. We've discussed Paige Beckers a little bit before. Um... So before we get to, because I do want to talk about Don Staley and some parallels that you made between um, South Carolina at this moment sort of dethroning Gino Oriyama and UConn in the way that Oriyama and UConn dethroned Tennessee and Pat Summit um, uh, two decades ago. Um, you know, I want to go back to that point. You know, do you feel as someone who also covers the WNBA that these college stars should have the opportunity to go pro now?
3: It's a good question. Um, Yes, I do. I think that should be an option. Ultimately, the WNBA would need to expand in a way. There's not enough spots right now in the league for players who are eligible to be drafted. There are at most 144 spots, and because of the salary cap, most teams don't carry 12 players. There are first-round draft picks. There are lottery draft picks that are not currently on rosters, lottery draft picks from last year that are not on WNBA rosters. This is just such a deep league, and the fact that you have players like Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird who are playing um, much further into their career than what we're you know used to seeing in the past makes even fewer spots right for these young players. But you do look at players like Paige Beckers, Aaliyah Boston, Caitlin Clark, um, and there's the one side of it where it's like, yes, this is what makes women's college basketball so fun. You get to know these players. You get to know their personalities through four years in college, um, which isn't true with one and dones when you come to the NBA. But
0: But with with NIL and the popularity of the college game relative to the pro game, it's actually um, you can make the argument that Beckers and maybe Aaliyah Boston now could make more money. Oh, yeah. Staying in college. Yeah.
3: Well, and I think what we're going to see specifically, because there are so many players right now that were given back their COVID year. So last season, everyone sort of gets that bonus uh-huh. year. There, we're going to see in the coming years, as players are deciding, am I going to go pro? Am I not? You know, we're seeing it with these seniors right now. There are going to be companies, donors, boosters that are offering some pretty lucrative NIL deals to say, hey, if you stay one more year, it's actually going to be $30,000 more, $40,000 more, whatever, than your rookie deal. And it's guaranteed at college versus, you know, you sign a rookie deal in the WNBA. It's the toughest league in the world, blah, blah, blah. You might not get it. You might not be on a roster. We're going to see some interesting uh, decision-making over the it next few years. It also does feel,
2: Joel, that this is a time for the WNBA to step up. It's not like these players are going to be going to play in Russia right now. That market is going to be cut off. Um and that was one of the most lucrative markets in the world for WNBA players in the offseason. So it seems like given the 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 success that college women's college basketball is having, and coupled with the sort of changes in the global landscape for women's basketball, it seems pretty stupid for the WNBA not to find a way to to step up and, and start paying people.
1: Oh no, I mean it would be great if the WNBA was paying like would what's commiserate with the with the women's potential like and, uh, money earning capabilities, right? But I mean, that's just not what it is. I mean, I would love to see the Houston Comets come back, and you know, there'd be more spots and sports spots in the league, and did that. But I, you know, I think about it like how, like Johnny Manziel and Tim Tebow were like sort of college sensations, and like you can live off of that forever, like in a way that you just can't in pro sports. And I like maybe that kind of potential exists mm-hmm. here in college basketball, right? That you can just be a college legend and eat off of that, and it doesn't almost matter what you can do professionally because you can kind of create this like. Uh, Uh, industry for yourself. But I actually kind of wanted to, because you you mentioned this stuff, and I'm going to ask you about this, uh, Chantel, about the piece you wrote, you know, drawing the parallels to, you know, um, UConn's rise with South Carolina's, um, that, you know, basically UConn couldn't become UConn without toppling Tennessee. And that's presumably what's happening here with South Carolina and UConn. But to me, in a way, like South Carolina is basically Tennessee, right? It has all of the resources and fan support in proximity to great prospects, like D.C. to Atlanta, that that footprint, like you can win there. They've got the money, they're a big name school, and that any school that wanted to be what Tennessee used to be could have done it if they had just hired the right coach and put all the resources into it, like SEC schools can. SEC schools can do this with almost any program. They, they dominate in track and gymnastics and everything else. And so it just seems like you know, basically what South Carolina has done is just taken the place of Tennessee in a way.
3: Yeah, I, I think you make a good point. Other schools could have done this. Other schools didn't do this. You know, other schools didn't find that coach that could bring their program to the next level. And there were people at South Carolina that were unsure about bringing Don Staley to South Carolina because they were going to have to pay a $500,000 buyout. That was one of the sticking points that people were like, ooh, I don't know if we can do this. $600,000. 500000 dollars $500,000. Yeah.
1: Okay. Right.
3: But that's what we're working with in women's college basketball. You know, there's a lot of programs, like you're saying, it's not like the college football world where, you know, these people are getting fat checks for years to just sort of sit on their butts and not coach. Um, but it's just a lot of schools could have done this. But South Carolina did do this. But I think, you know, my point with writing that was more about you have to take down the dynasty to become the new dynasty. And and Gina Auriemma is 68. He's not going to coach forever. Don Staley also says the same, to be very fair. She says, I'm not going to be 68 coaching. I'm not going to win 11 national titles because I'm not going to coach long enough to win 11 national titles. I don't know if I believe that 100% because I know Don Staley and I know that she's pretty competitive. And I'm like, well, what else are you going to do at 68? Um, but I think the idea of UConn as the measuring stick for so long in this sport and the dominance with which South Carolina came in yesterday and sort of the parallels of this was the court where Gino Auriemma won his first national championship. This is where he beat Tennessee in 1995. On this court, they were in the same locker room. And this is the first national championship game he's been to that he didn't win. And not only did he not win it, they got their butts kicked by a team from South Carolina that decided to invest, that decided to find the coach. That was not good when Don Staley got there. I wrote about this last night as well. You know, she got to South Carolina and she called it professional suicide because her team didn't love basketball. She had to have a coach pull her aside after an early practice and say, listen, you've lost this team. You've lost this program. If you don't change yourself as a coach, like, what are we doing here? And Don Staley had to change and sort of trick them into liking basketball and loving basketball to get the program to where it is now. So in terms of the resources of UConn in 1985 and South Carolina in 2008, very different. But I think the idea of being a nobody, having a measuring stick and going after that measuring stick definitely stays.
0: So Dawn Staley um, is a Black woman and has talked a lot about um, the importance of representation in coaching. When she won her first national title five years ago, she sent pieces of the net to other Black women coaches to show them that it was possible and to inspire them um, and she has different plans for this net which maybe you can tell us about but um you know I I wonder if for her players um, whether it's important to them to play for a black woman and she has um you know geno Orium as a white man um, and so there's there's obviously a, a contrast there. Yeah. I just wondered what her players kind of say about it and how do they talk about that aspect of her story?
3: Yeah. The majority of the players on her team have not played for a head coach who is a black woman that isn't their mom. She is a lot of these players' first black female head coach. Um, And players talk about that a lot. You know, obviously Dawn talks about how representation matters, but the players talk about it too, that they see themselves in Dawn and how she goes about life. And just reflecting who they are and what they look like. And I think in a sport like basketball, and you look at the WNBA, you look at college basketball that has a lot of Black players and not as many Black female coaches. I think that is why, obviously, Dawn sent out those pieces of the net. Carolyn Peck, the first Black female coach to win a national championship, had given Dawn a piece of her national championship net from Purdue and Dawn kept that in her wallet for years until she won her own, and then she sent it back to Carolyn. And that's why she sent out the pieces of the 2017 national title net this last year. Yesterday, after you know, after the game, she had the net around her neck, and she was asked, well, what are you going to do with this one since now um, all the coaches, all the Black female coaches in the country have a piece of your 2017 net? And she said, well, there's Black ma- male coaches who didn't get it. And she had thought about sending those pieces out in, in the last batch, but didn't. And she also said... And to black sports journalists, because those are also people that I don't think are getting sort of the opportunities or they're getting overlooked in ways. And so the ways that she represents people, the way that she looks out for people, she represents a lot to so many people, her players, her fans, you know, I think even reporters in the room.
2: You know, a lot of the conversation during the women's tournament was about equity and changes that the NCAA has made and the changes that haven't been made, television contracts and other things. But I was intrigued by the, this profile you did of Dawn Staley that ran in late February on The Athletic, um, in which you talk about her most recent contract negotiation. And it reflects, I think, like a bigger and broader change in some ways. South Carolina had extended the men's coach, Frank Martin, at a rate of about $3.2 million a year. Staley's contract came up, and she wanted it to be equal, Um, and she got it. And the message I think that that sends to her players and to her fellow coaches is as important as winning a national championship in some ways.
3: Absolutely. It was an interesting time because she had been at the NCAA tournament and I asked her about this, you know, she had spoken up about the inequities in the sport at large. And then she gets back from San Antonio, they lose in the final four. And it's time to start contract negotiations. And she's like, I can't be fighting for this stuff on a broader scale when I have the platform I have and not do it in my own backyard. I have to have these personal fights so that other people can have these personal fights. And I think the thing that's most unique about this is that we see Dawn Staley speaking up in all these ways. It's not a natural position for her. She's a very quiet person. She's a very reserved person. She's always been that way. This platform uh, is not something she has sort of willingly stepped into. The spotlight is not something she always enjoys, despite really, you know, I'd say performing well there and, and leading really well there. But when she went into that contract negotiation, it was with the implicit decision of, I need to do this so other people can do it. This isn't just about me. This isn't just about South Carolina. This is about everyone that follows. This is about the other coaches that follow. This is about the other Black female coaches who aren't going to get this shot. I need to show them how to do this or when they get here, how to do it. She asked her agent to stand down in that and actually hired an attorney to specifically fight for equal pay. This wasn't just about basketball. It It was about equal pay. And I think You know, this is, again, one of these things that steps beyond the basketball court as a woman, as, you know, myself. Like, that means something when you see other women fighting in that way.
1: So South Carolina won six tournament games by average of 23 points, (laughs) didn't trail in three of the games at all, and barely trailed in some of the others, Um, lost two games by a total of three points. So all that said, the most inexplicable result in women's college basketball this year has to be that loss to Mizzou, right? Like, I mean, South Carolina's loss to Mizzou because I, I was just looking up and like, how how did they lose to that team? Like, I just don't, it doesn't make any sense.
3: And Mizzou is without their best player who averages a double-double. It was, yes, that was very inexplicable. They had gone through the preseason where they beat five top 10 teams. They come into the SEC conference opener you're like, oh, Mizzou. Like, I wasn't gonna watch that game. Why would I watch South Carolina, Mizzou? It's probably on like a Thursday night. I have better things to do. I'm gonna make dinner. I don't need to watch South Carolina go trample Mizzou by like 60 points. Get a text from my editor like, hey, you probably want to turn this game on. Um, and there's some history there as well. But you know, they also that lost to game, Kentucky,
0: who lost to Princeton in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> okay.
3: The Kentucky that so lost to Princeton. is the national
2: champion. Then is that what you're saying, Josh? <laughs>
3: The Kentucky that beat South Carolina and the Kentucky that lost to Princeton, to me, two different Kentuckys. But no, the the South Carolina-Mizzou game was, uh, you know, I talked to Aaliyah after that game and I said, is that a wake-up call you guys needed? She said, I'd like to say no because I don't like to lose, but I think it was a reminder that we can't overlook anyone. And I do think, obviously, in the second round, South Carolina did not look great against Miami, but... Don even said yesterday, you know, and this goes back to the idea of her speaking for more than South Carolina, speaking for more than just herself and her team. You know, she looks at that Mizzou loss, at that Kentucky loss as good, not for them, but good for the game. And as a player, she would have never said that. But as a coach, she's saying, you know, it's good for the game when the number one team gets upset. It brings more eyes to the game. It's good when you have a team like Kentucky that comes in as a low seed in a conference tournament and runs the table and beats the national you know, unanimous pick for the national championship in the championship game. Like, all these things are good for the game. And so I, those losses were pretty inexplicable, but I think, especially now, it's probably easier to say with a national trophy in hand, but Dawn Staley is thankful that they happened and she sees it as ultimately a good thing for the women's basketball game.
1: Do you know what I call it when um, Mizzou beats South Carolina? I call it Columbia on Columbia crime get it. Okay, anyway, forget it. End of this.
3: It's a it's a college town joke. Yeah, college town, college town joke. joke. Right.
2: Chantel Jennings covers women's basketball for the Athletic. Chantel, thank you as always for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Coming up next, we'll talk about when it's okay to skip friend and family obligations to watch sports the way that that country singer
0: did over the weekend this week's bonus segment for slate plus members we're going to keep talking about the men's tournament focusing on the duke unc final four classic coach k's last game If you want to hear that conversation, you need to be a Slate Plus member. And if you are a member, you get a bunch of perks. No ads on any Slate podcasts. You get bonus segments like that one uh, on this show, as well as on Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gap Fest, Culture Gap Fest, and more. And you get the warm and fuzzy feeling of supporting this podcast. The show wouldn't be possible without Slate Plus member support. If you want to subscribe, if you want to become a member... Go to slate.com slash hangup plus. Again, that's slate.com slash hangup plus.
3: With Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Last Tuesday, the country singer Eric Church sent a message to his fans. This Saturday, my family and I are going to stand together to cheer on the Tar Heels as the team has made it to the Final Four, he said. As a lifelong Carolina basketball fan, I've watched Carolina and Duke battle over the years, but to have them match up in the Final Four for the first time in history of the NCAA tournament is any sports enthusiast's dream. Come on, Eric. This is our our job, to set the scene. Anyway, that message uh, went out to people who'd bought tickets to a sold-out Eric Church arena show in San Antonio, one that was scheduled for the same Saturday as the Duke-UNC game. Whoops. This is the most selfish thing I've ever asked the choir to do. To give up your Saturday night plans with us so that I can have this moment with my family and sports community, Church wrote. His fans are known as the choir, by the way. However, he continued, it's that same type of passion felt by the people who fill the seats at our concerts that makes us want to be part of a crowd at a game of this significance. He then quoted legendary Carolina announcer Woody Durham, go where you go and do what you do, and signed off with, thanks for letting me go here and be with the Tar Heels. A lot of members of the choir were not in a thankful mood. Some replies quoted by the Washington Post include the hoops we have jumped through to secure childcare, to drive four plus hours, to see you, to have a night of fun, to see an artist that we have literally bought every record from. This is bull. And I appreciate you wanting to experience the basketball game with your family. But how about those of us who are coming to the concert with our family? Yes, Stefan. How about our family? Uh, So let's get into the bigger picture in a minute about when it's appropriate to avoid social or professional obligations to watch sports. But Stefan, what are your thoughts on the narrow question here? Was Eric Church in the right to totally destroy his relationship with his fans (laughs) and separate them from their hard-earned money so he could watch a game?
2: Apparently Eric Church believes that he was in the right. I mean, I don't have a problem with Eric. I don't know who Eric Church is, so I should probably stipulate that. You do now. Else. I do now. This was good for uh, his
0: curating. Uh,
1: you know, you're not part Eric- <laughs> of the choir, apparently. So
2: I am not in the choir. No, I was an altar boy, though. I wasn't ever in the choir. Um, so was Eric Church right or wrong? Oh, Eric Church can do whatever the hell he wants. You know, It's his concert. It's his choir. It's his Tar Heels. If he felt the need to be there in New Orleans to experience the Final Four, you know, go forth and uh, and prosper, Eric Church. You have to suffer the consequences of your actions. I hope he enjoyed the victory over Duke. You got to admit, you know, that was a pretty good game. If you're a North Carolina fan, you kind of want to be there to bury Mike Shishovsky. So, from a sports fan perspective, I give Eric Church
0: my support. Mm, I'm sure that means a huge amount to him. I'm sure it does. He probably doesn't know who I am either, though. So, Joel, that. I sort of feel like, what is the point of being a rich guy if you can't just do what you want?
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I,
1: I don't blame him for wanting to do what he did um, and skip out on his fans and go to this game. Like, yeah, I mean, if you have the means to do it and this is really important to you, I can understand wanting to follow through and be there. But I mean, it's pretty inarguably like that's really selfish. That's kind of that's assholish, man, um, especially that's in a time— strong. Yeah, well, I mean, well, look, we're in a time... Is it any less gonna... selfish
0: if you say in the message, this is selfish? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, you're right. Well, he's trying to, yeah, he's trying <laughs> He's trying to, uh, to, to head off all, you know, counter arguments, right? But, I mean, you know, we're in a time when people have not had very many opportunities to gather. Like, we're still, I mean, I guess we're still trying to figure out whether we're you know, post-pandemic, currently in the pandemic or whatever. But, you know, people have really spent a lot of time building up, trying to go to these shows in the last couple of years. And, you know, I sympathize with all these fans who, you know, spent the money, made these plans, and then all of a sudden the dude is like, oh, oh man, I'm not going to be able to make it, man. It's a real important basketball game. I can, uh, you know, it's kind of inarguably, like, selfish. and Maybe it's a power move, not a selfish move. But yeah, I mean, I think that I I don't divorce that power from being an asshole. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like I just I don't know, Josh. You seem surprised that I that I use strong language. I use asshole twice. I (laughs) couldn't find another word. But
0: I'm I've never heard you use uh, such terms. Uh, My (laughs) my face is so red. Um, Joel, can you explain to people um, using your intimate knowledge of uh, the state of Texas what it what the significance is of Eric Church's kind of compromise with the fans. He has now said he is going to give a free concert in New Braunfels. If you were going to go to an arena show in San Antonio, how would you feel if you're going to like play the part of an Eric Church fan? If you're being told, instead of that, you're now going to a free show in New Braunfels, home of Schlitterbahn Waterpark, I must add, right. which I have been to. Yeah. Oh, you, you've been to that one in particular? I've been to Schlitterbahn in New Braunfels, huh. Texas, yes.
1: Okay, yeah. Well, there's a Schlitterbahn in in, in Galveston, too. Uh, just making sure. <laughs> wow. clarification. I also watched the uh, Texas A&M Mississippi State Bowl game, you know, the Independence Bowl in the snow. Yeah. I watched it from a Johnny Carino's restaurant in New Braunfels uh, on New Year's Eve in 2000 or 2001. So I've got mem- fond memories of New Braunfels as well. It's not a bad town. It's like it's it's a little bit more of a thing than it used to be 20 years ago. So, I mean, look, man, you know, New Braunfels kind of has a special place in Texas. It's like, you know, I think it's like, you know, Texans, you got, and country music fans, you all let me know. I don't know how how close Gern Hall is to New Braunfels, but I know that this is somewhere near like that. Like, I know that Gern Hall is like a big, Pilgrimage type place for country music fans, so I don't know. Maybe this is going to be near there or something. But no, of course that doesn't make up for it. Because again, if you're going to make this whole deal of going to a concert and you're going to go to San Antonio, where well, you get to be in San Antonio, you get to go to the Riverwalk, you get to go to you know, uh, Metierra. You know, you do all that cool shit there. You know, it doesn't make quite make up for it. But I'm telling you, this is how this dude treats the choir, right? Like I mean, he doesn't. Like he's just like, well, you guys are going to. I'm going to give you what I give you, and you're going to be able to deal with it. Like that seems to be fundamental his relationship, um, you know, with his congregants, so to
2: speak. I wonder what the calculation was and the conversations were. You know, I wonder if they thought maybe they could just say he was sick and then he could go incognito (laughs) and sit in a box. I mean, he would have been
0: spotted probably. (laughs) But I'm sure those conversations were had. Well, so here's a conversation that needs to be had. Our guy, Mr. Church, scheduled this concert for the day of the uh, Final Four showing Uh an extraordinary lack of faith. And uh-huh. what turned out right. to be a magnificent basketball team, and so uh, there is a little bit of like you made your bed, aka you showed so again so little faith in your team that you scheduled um, a, a concert on the date of the the final four, and and now you don't want to lie in it, so that that's uh, that's worth noting. Um, also, I, I didn't realize this until getting into the whole kind of Eric Church experience over the last few days he is like the Matthew McConaughey of North Carolina sports like he's the guy who's like on the sideline palling around with Mac Brown Mm. and like he's just like Toby
1: Keith of North Carolina if you will too
0: I mean he's just known as like the celebrity for North Carolina sports and there's like McConaughey with with Texas Mm -hmm. is kind of the most uh, notable example but it it's sort of what it, it maybe would have been bad for his reputation in another way if he didn't go to the game. Um, no, you
1: think people would miss? <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe I'm underestimating how big a deal Eric Church is. You think people would have looked around at the game that Saturday night and be like, "Man, Eric Church isn't here." He no, let you're us down right. You're night. right.
0: Oh. You're right. I retract. I retract. It would have been. It would have been bad for his self-conception. Like there is something extremely. Arrogant is too strong a word, because I actually don't have particularly strong feelings about this, and I don't want to pretend like I do. But maybe, it, maybe the word is hilarious, like that somebody would just like think of themselves as like so important to the game <laughs> and like w- would want to like intrude in that way, because it is an intrusion, right, Joel, to like just like be everywhere around a team and like think that they want you there. And maybe they do want you there, but it's like pretty presumptuous to feel like my place instead of in the crowd is like on the sidelines and like, you know, to have a special and exalted place. But like, I want you to respond to that, but also I want you to answer if you, uh, if and when you become a billionaire uh, and one of the world's most famous celebrities, are you gonna be that guy for TCU?
1: No, no way. I mean, look, first of all, I mean, do, do you think Armando Bacon knows who Eric Church is? He may have to know who he is, is because of his
0: proximity to yeah, maybe the Maybe they have like do a PowerPoint. Caleb be- Love has ever listened maybe they have like a PowerPoint before the season, just like explaining <laughs> you need to pretend like this guy. <laughs> right. Paolo right. Banquero was actually asked about him in a press conference and said, which made him maybe the most beloved Duke player ever in my mind. He said, I don't know who that guy is, but more power to him (laughs) or something something to that effect. (laughs) Just like trying trying to be very politic about it.
1: (laughs) I like Paulo. Most likable Duke player since Zion. Um, Wait, so would I be that guy for TCU? No. I haven't – you guys might be surprised. I haven't seen a TCU football game since like 2010, maybe even since before then.
0: Yeah, but in this circumstance, you have a charter jet. Yeah. No, I
1: don't – I mean – I, I guess I'm trying to figure out a circumstance. Like maybe if it was the Rose Bowl. Like I guess and maybe this is sort of equivalent to the Rose Bowl, right? Like wouldn't oh, yeah. hear the TCU make to the Rose Bowl? Oh, so it would if it was something like that and I had the means, would I skip out on everybody and all my obligations to do it? Or are you just asking me, would I do it just because I could? Would I be that guy? Would I become would I become Matthew McConaughey? Would I become Toby Keith, Will Ferrell, you know, uh, Michael for, for, Irvin. For TCU?
0: Uh, since you're a former player, maybe that's a better analogy. Yeah. Just like we're welcoming, you know, this is a new era of TCU football. We're really welcoming the old players and it would just mean so greats. much. It would just mean yeah. so much <laughs> for you to be on the sideline in purple every I game. I
1: would be, imba- I feel like I find that a little <laughs> embarrassing to be honest. Like I just don't think anybody would care. I, you know, this is just me, my fundamental. Well, orientation you have more of a place
0: world. on the sideline than, uh, our, our guy Eric Church does. You belong oh, there I'm, more than I'm, he does.
1: I'm, I'm sure
2: of it. I'm sure of it. Although he may have given more money.
0: Well, well that's, what, I'm I'm, sure that's that, what I was thinking, I'm sure Joel. <laughs> if you donate enough
2: so that the yeah. Joel D. Anderson Athletic Center at TCU becomes a reality. you will have a permanent <laughs> sideline pass. Yeah,
1: I, 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 I give them money every year annually, okay? So I you know I do a little something for my scale.
0: All right.
2: <laughs> the Joel D. Anderson laundry bin <laughs> in,
0: in the athletic laundry room. Stefan, do you have any um small scale Eric Church equivalents? In your life where you've uh, gotten in trouble with the Fats' choir for, uh, you know, going to a softball game or something? I don't know. What, what, what's the Fats' version of this?
2: Well, I almost, I thought that, uh, timely, I thought that the first uh, opening day of softball season was going to be last Friday. Uh, in my, in my over-50 league, last Friday was my birthday, Fortunately, opening day has been postponed, so I got out of that, and we were able to go out to dinner as a family. I think I probably would have gone to the game. You know, opening day—you can't miss opening day. Oh no, you can't miss opening day. No, yeah, we could have had dinner on Thursday; it would have been fine. Um, I went back and looked at my own wedding date to see if it conflicted with any big sports events. It was March second, two thousand two, and indeed, it was the final of the Atlantic Sun Men's Basketball Tournament. <laughs> Oh,
0: man. Florida Atlantic
2: beat Georgia State 76-75. The big South men's final was that day. Winthrop with a big uh, dancing win over High Point. And there were the quarterfinals of the Horizon and Patriot League tournaments. I had wondered about a few people who couldn't come to the wedding, who didn't make it. Didn't put two and two together until now. See? Something there. I mean, well, hold on. I mean, Josh is asking all the
1: questions. What about you? Have you ever done something like this? so I mean, I know you would do it for LSU. Because that would actually be pretty cool. You would be willing to be the Eric Church. You don't even have to answer that question. But have you ever done and skipped out and been a selfish asshole like uh, Eric Church did his congregants?
2: Have you ever let down 10,000 of yeah. your biggest fans, Josh, <laughs> right. to go to a I definitely event?
0: watched the LSU-Florida game, the one with like the, remember the fake field goal? Uh, on, on fourth down at the end of, this was like a classic, like weirdo Les Miles game where they did the fake field goal where the ball bounced on the lateral. No one would remember this except, except for me. Uh, I, I definitely I watched this. that game on television at a friend's like wedding party. Um, but in the years since, and this is like a big difference between me and you, Joel, I have gotten like so into DVR that like I went to a wedding this past fall put the phone in airplane mode and that, that's the advantage of like living in a part of the country where mm-hmm. absolutely no one could give it less of a shit about the team that I root for. And so it's like, not like anybody at the wedding was like, wow, we're going to go sneak off to watch a little LSU uh, Auburn. Like nobody cares. So I was able to just watch the game in uh, in peace uh, later that night or the next morning. I don't even remember. But Joel, since it's so important to you to be like texting with people and like on Twitter, Twittering. during the game Like, I don't, you're not into watching things after they happen. So that's like not, that's not an option for you. You're like this, you're the guy who like, this would be a real conflict for. Well, you know, so
1: I actually was thinking about if I'd ever been in this situation, because to be honest, I couldn't think of a time that I'd missed something in my personal life for a sporting event. Like, I just, I just have not done that. Like, that's just tends to be something I,
0: um. Because your personal life takes a backseat to sports?
1: I was thinking about this. I was just like, you know, I missed game one of the 2001 NBA finals to go to dinner with a co-worker who later became my girlfriend. Well, I was unable to miss a 2004 Astros game to get to my friend's bachelor party. And I said I would remember that forever. And I actually have. Like I never, I, I thought maybe like I was sort Because of you had to cover it but- for the AP? Yeah, I had to cover for the AP. I could not skip because Roger Clemens was on the mound, and you couldn't miss a game Fuckin when Roger Clemens, Clemens was fishing,
0: Clemens. Yeah. ruining people's lives. And I
1: just, I, I, still feel guilty about it. I remember thinking, like, I was so mad that night, and, uh, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I'll forget about this, but I didn't. But I, you and were you've right.
0: never watched a baseball game since that day.
1: <laughs> I never watched a baseball game day. But you know what? And, and you'll be, you'll be proud to know this. This is actually not a surprise. I went to a wedding in 2011 in Grenada, Mississippi, for a friend. And do you know what was happening that night and why I skipped out on his reception with another friend in there? The LSU Alabama game, the nine to six game,
0: nine to six game,
1: baby, the nine to six game, <laughs> the nine to six game. That night we watched it in, it in his hotel room. That night, so uh, yes, yeah, so I. But actually How, how early done... did
2: you skip out on the reception?
1: I was there long enough to eat dinner. I don't think we skipped like dancing and stuff like that.
0: You know what? Uh, what lasted longer? in, in y- the number of years of the marriage or the number of field goals in that game? Five field goals. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the, re- the, see, the re- see, the relationship lasted a little under two years. So, more you know. so I think there were more field goals. There were more field goals in that game, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there are all these sorts of stories, and this is like a persistent message board topic of like, why do people schedule weddings in the fall during football season? And Stefan, you dug up a whole bunch of stories about yeah. people getting married Chiefs fans getting married during the Super Bowl, et cetera, and so forth. This is like a topic that comes up constantly.
2: Yeah. Um, the Bengals fans who scheduled their wedding uh, for Super Bowl Sunday this year, and the story, this story ran in advance, so they were all very excited, and one of the lines in the pieces, um, for people to be able to come and have like a black and orange wedding and people to wear their Bengals gear and be comfortable and happy, leaving them with a lasting memory they'll carry the rest of their lives. That's right, of the Bengals losing on our wedding day.
0: <laughs> well, the, Be- the Bengals fans who schedule a wedding during the Super Bowl get much more of a pass than oh, Eric yeah. Church I mean, scheduling is... <laughs> a concert in the Final Four. Like, who could have imagined? We asked on our Facebook page, and a bunch of people wrote in with their own stories. Uh, Andrew Newhauser, as a Michigan State fan, I missed its Final Four game against Duke in eighteen ninety-nine, because I was scheduled to work as a grocery bagger that night. If I could do it, oh, Eric could yeah. probably show up to work too. Fair enough. Maybe my favorite one was Andrew Manzo. I missed out on game seven of Rangers Canucks because I had to attend a church council meeting while oh, we nice. were hiring a new organist. I listened to the last five minutes on the radio in the parking lot of the church. I love the specificity. You gotta hire yeah. the you gotta hire the new organist. It the, would
2: be it would have been even better if the organist went on. To, like, work for the Rangers or the Canucks.
0: We can add that in the movie version. So he couldn't skip for Church, but Church could skip out. Ooh. Ooh. Well done. Yeah. Mike Bakovan, I know of an attorney in the mid-'90s whose client had tickets to a Nebraska Cornhuskers football game and thought that was reason enough to miss the verdict of his fraud case. He was found guilty, and they picked him up outside Memorial Stadium. Rumor has it a good bit of time was added onto a sentence for that little stunt. That's, that's amazing. Perhaps apocryphal, perhaps not. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know,
1: Eric. Mid 90s Nebraska, though. I mean, again, that's kind of up there with UNC, UNC Final Four. That's a, that was good Nebraska football. So, it, I was, I was glad to see our
0: old friend
2: Carmen C. back uh, on the message board here. I missed watching UCLA's 13 9 upset win against USC because I took a girl I was seeing to LACMA Museum in LA. She broke my heart
0: not too long after, and UCLA continues to break my heart to this day. Touching. All right, Stefan, World Cup, fi- World Cup Final, we'll say 2026, mm-hmm. the U.S. playing mm, England, we'll say England, rematch of okay. the 2022 group stage game, mm-hmm. and out of nowhere, on that day, an event comes up in your life. Maybe your daughter uh, is getting married at a very young age. She better fucking not be. <laughs> what do you do? That seems, that seems like the uh, event that you would uh, want to miss the least.
2: Yeah, that, that probably would be the event. <laughs> I, but we have yeah, control. I would pain now, now. <laughs> having been through the Eric Church experience, I'll be checking the schedule for when, the, you know, to schedule my daughter's wedding. Um, I don't know. You know if, can I go to the game? Yeah, it's going to be at the Rose Bowl or wherever. I fully... Hope to be at the final of the 2026 World so Cup. So we're
0: scheduling your daughter's wedding for the Rose Bowl, so you can do both.
2: That seems smart. It's a smart move. Halftime. Yeah, <laughs> they have long half Fifteen yeah. minutes. Plenty of time to get
1: married. Ceremony. Ceremony doesn't take very long at all. You know, you can have the reception a little later after the game or something like that. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think that's fair. And now it is time for after balls and my uh, mention of what was going on while I was getting married in 2002. Went back and uh, looked up what actually happened in that Atlantic Sun championship game. Florida Atlantic beat Georgia State 76-75. I would have skipped my wedding to watch that game. (laughs) (laughs) The AP Raheem Brown had 19 points and 8 rebounds. First Atlantic Sun Championship for uh, Florida Atlantic. Georgia State was coached by Lefty Drizzell, a former Maryland coach. He's trying oh, to get man. to the tournament for the 14th time, but he was denied by Raheem Brown and Ernest Crumbly, who added 15 points for the third seeded Owls. The guy that hit the winning free throw with six seconds left was Robert Williams. And oh. He was a 49% free throw shooter, but his name was Robert Williams.
1: Robert Williams, not, not Time Lord. The, uh, another Robert Williams, presumably. Unless, you know what Tom Lord is, yeah. right? Yeah. Tom Lord. Yeah. The Celtics, Georgia State has a chance guy. to win,
2: but Lamont McIntosh's full-speed leaner in the lane rimmed out, mm. and when the Panthers couldn't come up with the ball, the Owls stormed the court. What a game. Mm. Sounds like it was a pretty good game, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, Josh, what's your earnest crumbly?
0: So as our resident tennis nut, I feel some sense of obligation to keep everyone informed about all of the latest developments. And the last time we talked about uh, fuzzy yellow balls on this program was after the Australian Open, which was won by Rafael Nadal on the men's side, his record-setting 21st major win by a male singles player and by Ash Barty on the women's side. Uh, Australian won her home Grand Slam, cemented her place as the number one player in the world. So that was a little more than two months ago, but if you've been following tennis, it feels like about a billion years ago. Um, the first big thing that changed was in late February, Daniel Medvedev became the first player other than Nadal, Federer, Novak Djokovic, or Andy Murray to become number one in the world since 2004. Medvedev had lost the Australian Open final to Nadal in a wrenching five hours and 24 minutes. Um, he's 26 years old. He's Russian. He made it to number one because of his consistent great play over the last couple of years, and also because of Djokovic's refusal to get vaccinated, which has ser- severely curtailed uh, his playing schedule and prevented him from accumulating ranking points. So congratulations to Medvedev for getting vaccinated. Um, as for Medvedev, his ascent to number one coincided with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, And led to calls from some, including uh, the Ukrainian player Marta Kostyuk, to temporarily at least ban all Russians from competing in pro tennis. That has not happened. But Medvedev and every other Russian on the men's and women's tour, they have been competing without the Russian flag alongside their names on scoreboards. Um, But Medvedev playing flagless, his reign as number one was very temporary. He lost it um, just a couple of weeks later in mid-March. He lost to Gael Monfils in the third round at Indian Wells. And Monfils is married to a Ukrainian tennis player, Alina Svitolina. So that was kind of interesting. Um, elsewhere at Indian Wells, Naomi Osaka lost in the second round to another Russian, Veronica uh, Kudermatova. And during that match, very beginning of the match, a single fan shouted out, Naomi, you suck. When it was all over, Osaka, who's been very open about her struggles with mental health, took the extremely unusual step of asking for and receiving permission to address the crowd on mic. So here is part of what she said.
3: It's, like, heckled here. Like, I've watched a video of Venus and Serena getting heckled here. And if you've never watched it, you should watch it. And I don't know why, but... Like, it, it went into my head, and I, it got replayed a lot. Um, I'm trying not to cry, but uh, I just wanted to say thank you and um, congratulations. Um, yeah, just thank
0: what you. Naomi was referring to there was the infamous scene in 2001 when Venus Williams withdrew from her scheduled semifinal with her sister Serena at Indian Wells, Um, Serena got jeered throughout her next match, the final against Kim Clijsters, including reportedly with racial slurs. That led Serena to stay away from the tournament for 14 years. Um, And so that was a really powerful image that Osaka was conjuring up. And it was one that suggested that she was in an extremely dark place emotionally, that she uh, went there. Um, So it was just very sad to see and hear that. Um, Then just a few days after that, the sports unquestioned number one, who I mentioned at the top, uh, Ash Barty, shocked everyone in the sport by announcing her retirement. She's only 25 years old. She had stepped away from the sport before, citing burnout. She went off and played cricket. She came back and was amazing. Um, but this time, she said, "I'm so happy and I'm so ready. I just know at the moment, in my heart, for me as a person, this is right." And it seems like. It is right for her. She's won a bunch of titles. Um, She just wants to do something else with her life. Maybe she'll come back someday. Maybe she won't. Um, But that was just an extremely out-of-nowhere announcement that totally shook up uh, the women's game. Back on the men's side, the Indian Wells singles champion was, shockingly, an American dude. Uh, 24-year-old Taylor Fritz from California. Uh, He overcame an ankle injury to beat Nadal, in the final biggest tournament win by an American in I would say forever, probably less than forever, but it just feels like forever. He's got a classically a big kind of American serve and forehand, also a pretty nice backhand. He is uh being followed around by Netflix cameras for a future documentary series along the lines of the hit Formula One show Drive to Survive. So you'll be able to watch the whole thing in Netflix style over dramatic fashion. Um, at some point in the near future. I don't know when that show is coming out, but that will be a, a nice uh, uh, moment for that series. Um, the guy that Fritz beat, Rafael Nadal, had actually was playing with broken ribs. He had broken his ribs in the semifinals um, when he beat Carlos Alcaraz. Nadal's going to be out for four to six weeks. Um, that guy, Alcaraz, he won the tournament after Indian Wells in Miami. He is 18 years old, and he has a name that you're going to need to remember. I've been filling your heads with lots of names here. But Alcaraz is extremely, extremely talented. He's probably the best player to emerge since Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer and is doing things as an 18-year-old that um, even those guys didn't do. Um, He's number two in the current... Um, they call it the race, like for the year end championship. He's only behind Nadal in terms of points accumulated this season. So this guy is uh, the very real deal. And he has got a whole lot of charisma too. Um, and the women's champion in Miami, Miami was the same as the women's champion in Indian Wells. And that is the new world number one, Iga Sviantek of Poland, uh, who is only 20 years old. She's won a major, the French Open in 2020. She's on a 17-match winning streak, and she is an extremely charming and self-effacing individual, as you can hear um, in this moment from her press conference after winning Miami.
3: Um, but it's it's pretty weird, because I, I got used to losing, you know, and I kind of accepted that in tennis you're going to lose more tournaments than win, so uh, it's pretty weird, yeah. <laughs>
0: So, Iga, you got to get used to winning, my friend. Um, And who did she beat in the Miami final? Naomi Osaka came back from that really sad moment in Miami to kind of race through the tournament, only lost to Fiontek. I mean, she lost in straight stats, but like to make it that far was really impressive. And then what was Osaka saying about herself and her goals after uh, Miami? This is uh, Ben Rothenberg had this on his, his Twitter, a transcript. By the end of this year, I would love to be top 10. By next year, I would love to be number one, back to number one. Then she says, oh, that's a big statement. Close to top five. Erase that, top five. You know what? I'm going to set that goal. Top one. Yeah, number one. In conclusion, tennis. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, can you
1: think of another um, inarguably great athlete who is this open about their vulnerability, like, you know, mentally, psychologically, outside of Naomi Osaka. I've never heard anybody even talk like that. You know what I mean? Like in, pu- in public. Can you think of anyone?
0: Since I was trying to edit myself and and mostly failed, but I didn't include that, like, a, another kind of notable thing to happen in the last couple tournaments is Nick Kyrgios has sort of come back and Reemerged as uh, a force in the men's game. And he and Osaka have talked in in recent weeks about how they see a lot of um, each other in each other. Um, And he's a guy who's talked very openly about his struggles and has like lashed out in a way that's made him, I think, less sympathetic to a lot of the public than Osaka is. But they definitely kind of relate to each other and see each other in each other again.
1: So Nick Kyrgios is is, is a Naomi Osaka-level champion athlete then, right?
0: No. <laughs> okay. Well, see, see,
1: I think that was sort of the difference, right? Because yeah. you actually have reason to believe that you should be number one. She should be number one in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And for somebody to be that good, that bulletproof, and to be like, ah, I don't know, maybe top five, maybe top ten. I'm really struggling. Like, you know, I've I've just never – maybe – I'm sure that I'm 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 not applying my my knowledge. Broadly I mean, I guess Simone
0: here, Biles would probably be the the equivalent. And it
1: only happened when it happened, though, with yeah. Simone Biles, right? So
0: yeah, and then gymnastics. I, I mean, Biles has had a, a pretty long career by gymnastic standards, but Osaka is still really young. I mean, she could be. I mean, if she chose to play it, I, I mean, there are a lot of different paths here. Ash Barty retired at 25. Serena, I think, has not officially retired, and she's, you know, 40 at this point. So Osaka could be on this journey for more than, you know, another decade if she wants to be. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.